This episode of Eastern Promise is sponsored by Priors Croft Services, specialists in media, communication, and political engagement. To find out more, call 07712 402 435. And for more about the sponsorship opportunities on Eastern Promise, contact me at mike at easternpromise.site. Big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise, the best of the guests. I'm Mike Rigby and welcome to a special episode of the podcast that explores the full potential of the East of England. This week, we're looking back at another of your favourite guests from the last 18 months. Legend has it that Emma Fletcher had a fateful conversation over a glass of wine that became the catalyst for one of the most exciting local energy projects in and for the east of England. The Swaffham Prior District Heating Scheme, which aims to end the Cambridgeshire village's dependence on heating oil, went online earlier this year, at a moment when the cost of energy has never been more topical. I spoke with Emma, chair of the Swaffham Prior CLT, in early 2022 about the scheme and also her then day job as MD of Avera Homes. I'm here with Emma Fletcher, the MD of Avera Homes and many multiple other things beside. Uh, Emma, welcome to Eastern Promise. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Do you want to just introduce yourself and uh, Avera Homes, first of all, and tell uh, the people who are listening uh, a bit about what you do? Yes, certainly. I'm the MD of Evera Homes. We are a unique development company set up by four housing associations. It's one of the first times this model has been used. So we're funded by Hyde Housing Association out of London, Flagship out of Norwich, Longhurst out of Boston and Cross Keys out of Peterborough. And all four of these housing associations have come together to fund private development as well as Section 106 and basically take on the big boys uh, to develop homes that create communities, to do sustainability, um, to ensure that they're not bidding against many uh, housing associations for the Section 106 affordable housing and making sure we're policy compliant on the affordable housing, if not, in many cases, delivering a little bit more. So um, it's quite a big ambition. Um, I've only been in the job nine months, so you can probably uh, judge me after a year or so. But, um, you know, we've had a few challenges and we're currently evolving into becoming more of a standalone company, um, which, you know, really is quite exciting and looking at new technologies in terms of construction and how we can actually look at the home. Um, Now, the way we live and work in our homes is, is very different to even three years ago. Absolutely. And so much has, has happened even just in the in the last nine months in, that's changed uh, all that, the way we live and the way we work. Um, do you think that Evera and, I mean, there, there are other uh, sort of companies formed by our uh, registered social landlords, RSLs and local authorities, such as you've got Big Sky in South Norfolk, for example, and um, Repton at Acle um, building there. Uh, what responsibility do you feel 
as as ever to do things in a more innovative way and in a more sort of taking advantage of patient capital a more innovative way than the private sector so i think um with all of our projects one of the partners if not two of the partners may have some of the social um stock the affordable housing stock that could be for rent or shared ownership and therefore they've got a long-term interest in the site so as the developer they've got a long-term interest not just building and disappearing off into the sunset so i think actually integrating the affordable homes much more into the community is something that's very key um so i think in terms of innovation there's um around community about um, not making the affordable homes look like the bit in the corner over there and actually see it properly integrated. Um, But also we've got very much a function on um, the cost of living and fuel poverty has always been on the agenda and the cost of living for the affordable housing providers. It's just now coming home to roost for a lot more people um, and those in the private market. So I think we've got a real opportunity to look at the cost of running the homes, how we live in them, the cost of lighting them, all those other things which um, possibly haven't been seen on the scale that we uh, ambition we're trying to deliver. So I think a little bit more heart, a little bit more of a drive and also a little bit more um, patient capital, yeah. for want of a better description, mm. people willing to invest money, take less profit, but actually see the right product being developed in order to have a long-term, better uh, home for people in the long term. You mentioned uh, different ways of, of construction, more use of technology. We interviewed uh, last week um, uh, a chap called Simon Blackwell who's looking at developing hemp fibre um, as a material, obviously that's that's I've seen that used before in a lot of places. What kind of sort of uh, there's been a lot of talk of three uh, D printable homes, but three D printable homes, but I'm not aware that there's been any examples of those uh, that have gone live in the UK yet. Perhaps you can tell us more. But what kind of technology are you looking to? So um, probably the most obvious one is sort of volumetric schemes and SIPs panels. Um, you can go 3D volumetric, which effectively something arrives on site fully built. Um, but that is not something we're exploring at the moment. But definitely SIPs panels, which are effectively cassettes that slot in to build the home. Um, they have great thermal qualities. Um, and actually, there are a lot of benefits to, to bringing those onto the sites. The problem, though, is um, probably we're not designing our homes in a clever way. And one of the things I really, really hate is waste. Yeah. And actually, one of the things we're doing in the next couple of months is reviewing our homes to actually think about what is the standard size panel for a SIP? What, how can we make our homes actually more efficient to build so we're not having offcuts and random bits of materials left out? Let's look at standardised windows. Little things like if people want to go and buy a curtain from a shop just off the peg, you know, um, the window should fit that size, uh, yeah. not be a random, random window that you can't find a curtain or it costs you more to have one made. So it's those sort of care and attention details. Similarly, we get far more parcels in our house now than we ever have post. So why don't we all have postal, you know, uh, box drops built into our homes? You know, we've got tiny letter boxes where anything struggles to get through and you spend your life going to the post office to rescue a parcel. So, so. That, I think, needs some bit more attention and also people wanting to shop more local. So, you know, the return of the milkman, having milk delivered somewhere to keep your milk cold. So I really think there's a really wholehearted review we can do on the homes. Um, I similarly have a massive dislike of white um electric boxes on the side of homes. So I'm talking with a friend who runs a plastic manufacturing company to see, can we actually do a different colour, you know? Mm. Um, 
we build homes, we try to make them beautiful and then we stick plastic things on the outside yeah. without much due care and attention. So, yeah, that's what I want to tackle. And I think we're nimble enough, small enough and uh, young enough to 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 try and lead the way on some of these things. Yeah. You you remind me of an anecdote about Camborne where um, they were very pleased with what they developed on, 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 on Camborne. And uh, yeah, yes, yes, the affordable housing was all mixed in. And it was only later that they realised that if you had an affordable housing, you had brown UPVC windows and everyone else had white ones. So the idea of all mixing them in is, uh, you know, not over in the corner is, is lost. And uh, that's something I experienced quite a lot in a previous life when I would sort of go along to sort of various meetings about ha with residents, existing residents about housing housing that's being built. And it's all very much, no, 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 we don't want them in amongst, we want them over in the corner. And that's such a negative way of looking at it. Yeah, I totally agree. So one of the things we're doing as well is if you come into one of our sales um, homes, we will sell you any one of the homes we if if you want a shared ownership home it's the same lady you talk to or man if, if you want a private home it's exactly the same as well um so you know it's it's to be seen and treating everybody on a level playing field whatever your price point and whatever your position and i think this how you treat people from the second they walk onto your site is actually a good indication of your ethos and how you want to go forwards absolutely uh, what steps are you taking in terms of the net zero agenda so we're looking at that quite heavily. So I've only been in nine months and obviously you appreciate planning takes a little bit of time. But for one of the first things I did was change um, our scheme in Lake and Heath and our scheme, our second scheme in uh, Ramsey um, to air source heat pumps. Uh, and that's no easy feat. We've had to look at all the house types to accommodate um, the air source heat pumps where they go. And um, but that's a change we made straight away, especially in Lake and Heath, where there is no gas. Um, so that's a big step forward. We'll be the first development we believe on that scale in Lake and Heath to be delivering air source heat pumps. So we'll see how the market responds. Um, but in future, actually, I do think that individual air sources is, is a waste of time. And I do think we can look at a second phase over on the airbase at Ramsey for district heating. So actually, nobody has to have the tank in the room. And again, that plays to space requirements. Everybody would be delighted if they give up a tank and a boiler space. So, mm. you know, it's 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 looking at actually how people live in the homes and how we can improve them and make it more efficient. That's bad. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. As as someone with a dirty grippy boiler sticking out of my my house at the front and a, a, a big oil tank uh, not so far away, I mean, you you mention oil, so I think it's probably good and community heating, so it's probably a good idea we we jump to that. Uh, obviously, I've re I've been reading quite a lot about the the Swaff and Prior scheme. Do you want to just outline for those who don't know what that is and who've never come across community heating? I mean, that's, it sounds absolutely fantastic. Do you want to just outline what that's about? Yes, certainly. Well, um. We have been slightly criticised of being a guinea pig project, but project, but actually we genuinely aren't. Um, in, if you look to Europe and our, our cousins across um, the channel, there are a lot of people and the North Sea, there are a lot of people already on district heating. And actually, we are very, very behind our European cousins. So district heating is the concept that um, effectively you take out the individual boilers in people's homes that could be gas, oil, um, or electric heating, and you generate the heat off-site in a community-sized scale uh, energy centre. Um, and the project that we've got effectively has an energy centre just slightly out the village in an old agricultural um, uh, farm setting. And um, the 
if you imagine that the energy centre is the heart that's producing the heat, and we'll go back into that, we then pump around the village hot water um, in what could be described as, as veins and arteries to people's to people's homes. The um, the really difference with this project is we're achieving um, 75 degrees coming out of the energy centre and achieving 72 degrees to the individual home. And the hot water never transfers into people's homes. You have a heat interchange unit that's a bit like a combi boiler on your wall. So you ditch your massive oil boiler, you ditch your oil tank, and you get a very nice, neat 600 uh, wide uh, combi boiler effectively on the wall called a heat interface unit. And that acts as an umbilical um, sort of movement. So the hot water comes past your heater and it transfers the heat into your existing hot water and heating system in the home. So back to the energy centre, it's how do you generate energy in a sustainable way? So we've got 120 boreholes going 200 metres deep. They are showing now with 37 boreholes in, they're showing a consistent heat temperature of about 15 degrees. And then we're topping up with industrial air source. So um, those factors combine to help bring the temperature up. And we also have a private wire to a county solar farm off-site, which provides us our um, uh, fossil-free electricity supply to the site. So you've got this energy centre on the, on the edge of the village, sat in a, um, a barn, with um, boreholes under an existing farmer's field, which will revert back to a field, and then um, these pipe network that's going through the village. I mean, what was fascinating, I, I found uh, a piece on the ITV website that was uh, coverage of the, of the start of the scheme. And it was, it was from what I read, it was very much you and a neighbour basically got it going, didn't you? <laughs> um, there has been a massive team of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess so, I guess. Yes, it probably is, but but there is a massive team of people. This has not been, um, you know, uh, 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 small left. And I thought, well, what else do we do with this company? Quite honestly, we thought to tackle fuel poverty was my thought. Um, let's get us off oil and help people in low incomes in the village. I happened to meet Mike, um, who's a, a dad of one of my kids' friends. And he said, well, funny you should say that. Ten years ago, I worked for a Danish company introducing district heating to the UK. But guess what? It never took off. And now I'm working back in ecology where I was before. So he and I combined, put our thinking hats on, and we bid for some grant. We spoke to some consultants, and really that kick-started the project. But but genuinely, it's a, a mammoth team of yeah. people involving the county council, engineers, all these very clever, whizzy people and then literally man with with uh, JCB digging the roads up at the moment to put the pipe network in. So it is, it is a cost of thousands that yeah. are delivering this project, um, you know. Yeah, but I, yeah, it, it, the gem of an idea came from the two of us. Yeah, well, no, absolutely no disrespect to, to, to the team. Um, do you get many people coming and knocking on your, your door or the team get many people coming and knocking on the door saying, we want to see how this this was done, this is brilliant? Shall I tell you what, the response has been phenomenal. I wish, I wish I had recorded how how many people have been and come round. In literally the last week, we had a gentleman from Derbyshire who happened to be visiting relatives. He wants to do a project up in Derbyshire for his village. We had the um, Heating Builderston team came over on Saturday morning, together with also a team from Littlebury Parish Council. So um, together with a whole list of other villages, including some in Cambridgeshire that are already well in, on their way to doing their own scheme we've had the welsh development agency watch us and, and i think all of a sudden 
eyes are on us, but we never set to be that type of project. But but we've received an awful lot of grants in order to, you know, learn from our mistakes, do lots of R&D around this project and, and, and even write the heat supply agreement that no one's ever done before. So, mm. you know, if you change electricity provider, you just, it says, have you read the terms and conditions? And you tick the box and you've never read the terms and conditions. <laughs> well, we've written those terms and conditions. We had to. So the next teams and the next projects that come forward can benefit from from all of this learning. Yeah. But, um, and we're very keen to spread the word, but, but, but there's a, it's a ticking time bomb. People don't realise how quickly they're going to have to change and, mm. and how expensive it's going to be, be it you are uh, you know, a private owner, a, a landlord of, of properties, be it private or affordable, there are some big costs coming down the line and, and no one knows what all the solutions are. No, indeed. I mean, I, I mentally start thinking there's a there's an old site of a substation in my village just around the corner thinking that would work that'd be ideal that's there's nothing on it it's brilliant um so but yes it was it was absolutely frightening to think actually that's that that's really close that time frame and you simply well it's a lot closer it's a lot closer than people think it is it really is um a consultation the consultation closed last month mm. and government are proposing, and I got this wrong, government are proposing that no new oil boilers can be fitted come um, 2026. Yeah. I, I mean, that's... 2026, I thought it was retrofit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And but it's... no, all new ones. Exactly. So you're thinking, well, whether you want to or not, it's it's a, it's a heat pump. It's uh, ground or air, and I've no idea which which one you do. But and my wife said it's it's about time we start with this. But let's start putting some money away so we can actually move up, move, uh, get something done when the time is right. You know, when the, when we've got no choice because our I think our first oil boiler lasted about fifteen years, and there's no guarantee the same. You know, the same will happen yeah. twice. Um, and uh, yeah, but also you've got the problem: individual ones don't get to a high enough temperature. Mm on old properties and that is the biggest problem we've got is that maybe an individual air source might get 35 possibly 40 degrees so a lot of people install them but if you haven't done the insulation and you haven't done the double glazing and insulated your home which is costly you're going to be quite chilly um and there'll be points in time where if you if in winter you want hot water you won't have heating as well oh dear yeah well we'd uh, we'll see what we can do about helping people out just making people aware of that um because i say i looked across the east of england for other community heating schemes and the only one i could find that's not to say there aren't others but the only one i could actually find was at snake maltings so that i think there really has to got to be a drive i think to to get the get the idea out there and get more people looking at this sort of thing because it, it's going to be if not the answer certainly a huge part of the answer for a lot of a lot of communities yeah and also um the district heat the pipes the network going around the village that is all the same the pipes last for 60 years the heat interface units are the same but different communities can utilize their local assets so the derbyshire group are looking at tying it in with a wind turbine a group at great staunton and perry over to the west of came are looking at actually putting the pipes into grafham water right. and utilizing a water source so so you can you can look to your local kind of condition or position as to what might be suitable for your area um you know it, 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 the energy source can be different but the concept can be the same yeah both terrifying and fascinating in equal measure uh, could we come on to uh, community land trusts because that's uh, over the years i worked uh, for richard bacon in um 
with his uh, love and affection for housing and self-built housing in particular. I obviously heard Community Land Trust, CLT, an awful lot. But just in case there is anyone listening who doesn't know what they are, could you just quickly co- cover that off and and, uh, and fill us in? So um, there are different types of community land trust, um, but effectively it's a company set up um, to deliver uh, community benefit. So it's it's a listed company, it has a bank account and it can deliver under the, um, the remit of however you set your community land trust up. So ours was set up on the back of the need. Um, I was on maternity leave, walking, pushing a pram around the village and suddenly realised actually um, we haven't got that many young people coming to the village. It's expensive to rent privately. It's expensive to buy privately. And and similarly, also, we had old people in um, more traditional affordable homes where maybe they were under-occupying and it wasn't meeting their needs. So um, we did a big survey of the village about what the village wanted. And actually, what came out loud and clear was there were people in our village that needed bungalows, but there were lots of demand for um, small two-bed and three-bed properties. Um, so we're set up as a community land trust as a company. We can go for grant funding, et cetera. Ours is a slightly different model that we borrowed from West Country CLTs, whereas the CLT owns the freehold of the land and a housing association has a long-term tenancy of the properties. And we, the village, get the ability to nominate who uh, occupies the property under criteria that we set. So it's quite a neat system. Um, there are community land trusts where everybody goes out every weekend and builds bricks and, you know, builds yeah. homes, you know, bricklayers and electricians and stuff. But um, to be perfectly honest, I value time with my family at the weekend. So we knew we wanted a model that others took on the heavy lifting, so to speak. But as a village, we wanted the, to make sure that the homes went to the right people that had connections to our village, be it grown up here, be it grandparents that want to come and be near their relatives to look after grandchildren, be it people who work in the village school or the village pub. So we can keep our community together by dealing with those who really need to stay in the village and, you know, have birthright to be in the village and also strong connections to our village. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so important to to keep that going. And I think that's what really helps to sell development to a lot of uh, existing residents. I remember talking to an MP saying, "Isn't it, it, do you find it difficult that you're on on the one hand you're 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 advocating on the behalf of the residents you have, but against the the, the needs and the wishes of the residents you don't yet have, but you might well have in the future? Is that not a tricky position for you to be in? Because a lot of MPs won't go near planning uh, because it's just too too difficult. I mean." What I wanted to ask was how much vision, I mean, it might be a flexible thing, but how much vision can you put, do you think, into a, a community land trust when you've got things like the local plan and a na- perhaps a neighbourhood plan as well? How much freedom do CLTs have? So our village is pretty small. Uh, we're about 300 homes. So um, the cost of the neighbourhood plan is was totally and still is almost prohibitively expensive however the one thing we do have is the community um, infrastructure levy in east cams so if we did have a neighborhood plan we could have taken 25 percent of that money from the private element in the development as it happens we got 15 percent of that money but it was thought the 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 payoffs of doing the work and doing the neighborhood plan paid off Um, in terms of the local plan we actually beat the local plan in that sense because um it was very slow and also um, the community 
uh, were engaged in the project. We were doing lots of consultations. People were very aware. And whilst there was a private element, we were delivering the affordable homes for the village. Um, we hardly had anybody object. I think one person wrote in possibly, but, you know, we work very hard to ensure that everybody was aware of what we're doing. Um, the landowners are very well known in the village, um, so they were trusted um, as well to deliver something the village needed. And I think it was of a scale that was the right scale to the village too. Yeah. So, as I said, we're about 300 homes and it was a project of, of um, quirky 20 20 houses so it wasn't too big in terms of it was proportionate to the size of the village um and the people that are, are in there are, are very much part of the community as well mm. so it's worked fairly well um you know there's always room for improvement what you do differently next time but but we're pleased with it so what i mean just just to pick up on that what, what if you sort of had your time again or wanted to do another uh clt what would you pick take what, what lessons do you take forward so the biggest learning is that the lists held by the council aren't correct in terms of the real extent of housing need. Mm. And I think that's a real problem. So in order to qualify through the council's list, you've really got to be a band A or a band B um, in terms of housing need. And a lot of people in the village were probably a C or a D um, that are actually occupying. So they're living with their parents, they're on a friend's sofa, but, but technically they weren't the most in need. Um, and what I think was scary was... Um, we had eight homes and we went out and asked people and we had 26 applications of which 25 were all valid applications. They mm -hmm. all had links to the village and also um, the lack of one bedroom homes. Yeah. I think that's what we hadn't picked up on. So if I had my time again, I'd have done more one bedroom homes for 20 somethings that couldn't afford the rent, even the highly subsidised or reduced from private um, levels they couldn't afford it so I think the scale of 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 those people in need is really underestimated you know we were told that there was probably 12 people in housing need off the lists and we got 25 so yeah over double and I think that's what I've learned is that is that you know there's more hidden homeless than you could possibly understand or know given yeah. the official statistics that were provided so do you think it's it's the responsibility of the councils to look again at that or can we perhaps could, could communities or um, i don't know who exactly but do we do we need to play a role in in bringing those people into the light so to speak i think every public service is stretched beyond its stretchy limit mm. it is and i think um trying to put any further onus onto public sector bodies at this moment in time is a very difficult thing to do um i think staff are overworked i think they're stressed out i think you know and the budgets are being cut and therefore i do think now is the time that communities step up and I think it's a time where professionals step up and offer their skills in a volunteer capacity to their village, whatever it happens to be. And, and don't get me wrong, there are plenty of people that do that, but it's always the same people. Mm. So there's plenty of people out there that can put themselves forward. And and I'm a great believer that um, actually there's no there's there's a lot of rules that say that you can't do things, but there's also similarly a lot of rules that you make up in your own mind, you yes. know. You know, 
there's no rule saying, no, you can't plant a forest. Well, of course you can plant a forest. You just got to go find the landowner, find mm-hmm. the grant, find the money to do it. But you can do it. So I think if everybody started with a can-do attitude rather than put up their own mental barriers to why you can't do stuff. Yeah. I think, I think communities would actually achieve a lot more than they realise they can actually achieve and and it doesn't mean just the parish council it means other people in the community like us setting up the community land trust if if people haven't got the enthusiasm you put your hand up and you do soon find other people like mike in the district heating thing who also have the similar enthusiasm and 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 you gather together and form a group you know so i think whether we like it or not now is the time to dig deep pull collective brain power and resources and actually Mm. um dare I say it, go, go sort ourselves out because Absolutely. at the moment no one else is coming to help. No. So, you know. It's on us. And now is the time. Uh, yeah, that's why, I mean, that's very much why I'm I'm, I'm, I'm doing this in my own small way. Um, I'm not setting boundaries, say only this county, that county. I'm, you know, take, taking the East as, as, as I find it and going out and, and, and talking to people like you who are doing really, really exciting and interesting things. Uh, James Palmer, the, he'll be more familiar to you than he will many listeners in Suffolk and Norfolk, who's the, obviously, as you know, the former mayor. He's launching something called the Eastern Powerhouse, which is very much uh, a lobbying and think tank type organisation, which is launching in London, oddly enough. But uh, I believe on the 15th, well, no, I don't believe I know because I'm going, but on the 15th of March, uh, so that's that's one to watch out for, I think, and to see where where he's going with that. And and uh, uh, I for one sort of stuck my hand up and say, well, what can I what can I do to help? And I think do you, do you, I'm sure you'd agree that what we need is more people turning up and saying, okay, what can I do? Yeah, and I think you know you'd need just anybody and everybody, you know, from dare I say it, leaflet droppers. We've got a team of teenagers who, for a small fee, will drop leaflets <laughs> around the village through to, you know, we've got some, you know, incredible women that, you know, are brilliant at organising. Well, take those skills and organise another new project. You know, it, it, everybody has something to give in the village. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is you do need to be resilient. I mean, yes. obviously, for every new idea, there are plenty of people that tell you sometimes it's not the best idea in the world. Mm. So, you know, um, you know, don't go off and create stupid ideas that will never work. But but if you, you know, decisions are made on sound, you know, ground with scientific backing or good other examples, I think things will fly. And I, I hope definitely with the district heating project that the other communities will feel confident enough to show their communities what can be achieved and and you know develop far quicker than we have over the last four years i think you're absolutely right in so much of what you say and one of the things i've i've taken is from my experience of work being in parliament and government is that generally the center is pretty happy to leave places that have got their act together to just get on with it and right and it's it's it, i think it's it behooves us all in this region to as you say just get on with it and stop sort of contemplating um this that and the other and just dig in and and and, and deliver for the people who live here one of the things i wanted to circle back to with evera is i was talking to saul humphrey of of the building growth sector group here in norfolk and suffolk and we were talking about new settlements and car use, which is something that Liftshare, the charity, I think they're a charity, or certainly the Lift, the Liftshare organisation is 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 also highlighted. When you are ever, ever is coming to sort of designing new um, 
new settlements or new extensions or new developments. That was the word I was searching for. What does, where does that kind of consideration start fitting in? So um, for me, it's everything. And I think, um, unfortunately, rural bus uh, networks really at the moment do not work or function in a way they should do uh, to serve local communities. So um, for me, it's about finding sites with train stations. Um, I, I genuinely believe that trains have lasted the time and will continue to last the time. Um, but also there's a lot of focus when talking about transport on cars, but actually not enough focus actually on broadband and Wi-Fi. Mm. You know, if anything has taught us in the last three years, if you can connect people you can cut carbon footprints dramatically by having decent broadband Wi-Fi, et cetera, mm. um, to rural communities. And I think that's the game changer. I think there's a lot of focus on transport, but actually um, pushing out higher speeds is is the way forward to really make some big differences. Yeah. Um, it also deals with rural loneliness. It deals with a whole load of other things. And for the farming community, really some exciting prospects ahead in terms of, you know, Internet of Things, devices connecting to tractors, satellites, etc. So, yeah. so, and then that really brings us down to power and power links into transport. Um, we have a massive problem with the lack of power on the local grid network. So, we're going to have to think very carefully about how we design our developments in terms of car charging, in terms of where the electricity comes from, that type of thing. Because if everybody has an electric vehicle, yeah. it doesn't actually do away with the car. <laughs> Similarly, also, if everybody decides we're going to have these autonomous vehicles, which sound brilliant, statistically, 50% of the time, they might actually be empty going between journeys rather than being parked up mm. off, off the street. My uh, teenage and preteen kids probably won't bother to take the bus. They'll take an autonomous pod. My mother, who's 75 plus, she will take a pod rather than catching the bus. So if we go autonomous, I think there is a real risk we will have more vehicles on the road as well. So Blimey, yeah. I don't think it's as easy as anybody <laughs> thinks. No, um, it seldom is. But also we've got We've got to think about drone delivery. So I have investigated whether you can buy airspace because I do think mm. some of the most valuable property we've got coming in the future is probably over the A11 and the A14 and and the connectivity that will be needed to make sure drones stay up in the sky. But on the moment, if I can't even drive, drive along the, the A11 with my mobile going dead, I think we've got a bit of a way to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there is there is actually a, a sort of putative drone corridor uh, in the sort of the mid just in around Attleborough and Snetterton and Wyndham um, that, uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever been, I'm sure, I'm sure you must've done, but I don't know if you've ever been to the showcase uh, at Adastral Park. We recorded a tour there and there's so much of the stuff you're talking about. I mean, it, it what blew my mind was, uh, and I keep telling people about this, they had um, in, in terms of energy and uh, living, uh, supported living, they could, they're at the point now where passive Wi-Fi that surrounds all of us uh, right now, where I am, where you are, um, that that can be adapted to detect falls, for example. Yes, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and they can disaggregate energy use down to the individual appliance. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they told me an anecdote of how they thought the whole thing had gone kaput and uh, why is why is it recording use at two o'clock in the morning? And then they realised it's because their son was home from university and that's when he was chucking stuff in the microwave and making a pot noodle. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there's so much that, that that's coming down the tracks that can be done. 
uh, and uh, they were pains to say to me at BT, it's coming, it's coming. And I had to sort of say, well, yes, there's a point, that, there's a point for everything that's with us now when it was coming and it will get here. And it'll be fantastic when it does and it'll make, it'll have its, it'll cause its own issues. Everything does. But, you know, it'll make such a huge difference to our lives, I think. And I think the kind of things you're doing is, are so critical and so crucial, especially around Cambridgeshire, where if you weren't offering houses to local people, I imagine that they they would have been snapped up before you could blink. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, we are offering homes, um, you know, out on the private sale with the with the Ever Hat on, as well as the shared ownership and affordable. But actually, on our um, first project, we found that the majority of people, all by one household, actually came from within five miles of the site. Right. So, we you know maybe not your traditional kind of um, large city location, but in order to make sure that our market towns are thriving, you know, we need to make sure that there is the the options of these homes for local people that are good, that are well built, you know, that are insulated, reducing running costs, you know, very much like our village on a small scale, mm. getting balanced communities into maybe the slightly more forgotten market towns will be essential to seeing them, you know, pick up again and thrive yes. with the market, the market centre changing, you know, but but you just need a few sort of, you know, interesting cafes and shops, et cetera. And, and, and really places can turn around. Yeah. Have you, have you ever, you, you, I, I'm asking you this and I'm sure you probably have, have you ever been down to Poundbury? Uh, yes, I have. Um, yeah. Weirdly, I did work experience with the Duchy of Cornwall really? when I was a student at university. So, yeah. So, back in the early days, <laughs> and I've done one flying tour en route on holiday through just to have a yeah. look. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, new settlements are always really difficult. And and no one can ever really cite me a good example of a new settlement whenever I ask, you know, so what are we aspiring to be? Mm. Um and, and one of the biggest things I don't think we've ever learned from is the difference between Harlow and Letchworth Garden City, for example. Yes. So Letchworth, the benefit of Letchworth is the Heritage Foundation. It's had the ability to regenerate itself, to evolve itself, to change its its town centre, um, to keep it looking nice and pretty and some control. Harlow, on the flip side, as a new town, everything was sold off and therefore the regeneration has proved very, very difficult to to Harlow in terms of making it sort of move forward in leaps every generation. I think that is definitely something to be learnt from on some of these bigger developments that a single point entity control with the long term interest yeah. really should be maintained. And I think possibly that's something that's been lost in understanding and thinking. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've, I was lucky enough to go out to Letchworth uh, for an event there. And we've actually managed to coax David Ames, um, I think he's head of heritage uh, and planning at Letchworth, over to Norfolk on on two occasions to speak at events I was organising for, for Richard Bacon MP. Uh, speaking of him, uh, I'm bound to ask, to, to what extent is, is self-build and custom build uh, something you, you offer both as the CLT and as Evera? So we have yet to do that. If I'm entirely honest, no. I've in in a past life I've sold plots to people to to do their um to do their sort of grand design. But there's currently policy to offer up plots within larger developments for self build. So definitely in Cambridgeshire, South Cam's and City, there is the ability to offer up some plots to self builders. However. For many self-builders, they're not exactly the plots of their dreams. Um, a lot of self-builders have ideas and aspirations of, you know, large plots, gardens, growing vegetables, you know, some sort of grand design type house. 
um, there's also the issue that if you're paying for rent and a mortgage on an existing property, trying to buy a plot and build on the plot, to be honest, has only really been something that the rich can do or for people who are willing to live with relatives and save the money. I yeah. don't think it has naturally been something open to all. Um, in terms of development sites having plots left, I think it's a great idea to have them around the site to break it up. But um, there's things like connections, when the plots are available, how does the planning sit on the street scene if somebody wants to go fully glazed or shining or singing versus somebody next door who wants to do thatch or even hemp, that, you know, that's a very different look. So there's a whole urban design piece there, which is quite challenging. Now, you can put restrictions on people, but that's not historically what self-builders have want. Self-builders have wanted more flexibility um, than possibly those constraints have, have given them. So I think it's a brilliant idea, but I like ideas that are open to all, that are open <laughs> to all community. And I don't think it is something, one, for the faint-hearted, if we're really wanting, you've got to have a pretty strong relationship if you've got another half to get through a self-build. Yeah. But also I think for those on lower incomes, it's very much your aspiration and there are very few examples where people are seen to be now living the dream. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, speaking uh, of living the dream, on uh, on that note, as they say, uh, I'm going to sort of thank you and, and, and close off the interview uh, in a second. But one of the things I do like to do is, is when I end the interview is ask as a bit of a whimsical question. Uh, just, just because because it's it, it's fun and I think it it ends the interview in a fun way. So the question I wanted to ask you is, what would your ideal home, your ideal home, be, and where would you build it? I do like a view. I right. have to say, I like seeing the sky. I'm originally from Watford, and I, I now live on the edge of the Fens. And I think big skies for me is something. Mm. The landscape of the Fens is something I've grown to absolutely love and enjoy. Um, so be it the Fens or be it the sea, I think that's what I would love right. aspirationally. I can't afford, <laughs> but aspirationally, that's what I would like. Um, I just genuinely think being able to see nature and engage with nature is so important, especially if more people are working from home. Um, I do love my garden. I'm not going to lie. And I also like entertaining in my garden. So so a, a space to grow vegetables, somewhere I can move my four chickens to, uh, our four chickens, I should say. Sorry, my yeah. children be very upset. <laughs> our four chickens too. And I think just somewhere that's got good connectivity and on a train station as well. So if you could find me a nice spot by the coast or a nice uh, spot on the fens with a good train station, good views. And a little bit of space, I think, yeah, that would be perfect. Well, if there's anybody listening who can help Emma, email me at host at easternpromise.site and we'll, we'll, set, we'll, we'll try and set that up. Emma, it's been absolutely delight and fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure to speak to Emma Fletcher about the hugely important Swaffham Prior District heating scheme. Though initially sniffed at by the Daily Mail, no less, time Events and circumstance have combined to prove Emma, Mike Barker and the villagers of Swaffham Prior correct. Cambridgeshire County Council and other local authorities have backed the scheme, as has the government. It should hopefully prove to be the first of many in our region and the east of England should celebrate this achievement with pride. I hope to pay a further visit to Swaffham Prior very soon. Next week, we'll be going galactic 
with the launch of Space East, our very own space industry cluster. And I'm also joined by Norfolk sci-fi author Garrick Fincham to discuss his debut novel Interchange, along with a few little special treats left behind by the Easter Bunny. So until then, bye for now. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.